Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome back, everybody. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Gwen Kruger, who is a professor of physiology in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the Northwest University in South Africa. So his research focuses on hypertension in children and early adulthood. He currently holds several positions, including the South African Research Chair in uh, the Early Detection and Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease in Africa. He's the current president of the Childhood Hypertension Consortium in South Africa, the chair of the Next Generation Committee of the Southern African Hypertension Society, and he's part of the Scientific Committee of the International Congress on uh, Hypertension in Children and Adolescents and the International Pediatric Hypertension Association. At the International Society of Hypertension, uh, Dr. Kruger used to chair the New Investigator Committee and he's currently a member of the Women in Hypertension Research. Ren, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I have known you for, um, I think, close to a decade, uh, and I'm really excited to be interviewing you after having had the pleasure to work with you. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to the interview. Lovely. Um, so, uh, to get started, can you tell us uh, about your story and how you ended up in research and researching hypertension in particular? Yeah, so I always had an interest in medicine and health sciences, but I also had a great passion for music. So in 2015, I intentionally went to a university where there was a famous local student company, Musical Theatre, that I joined for a period of five years while I was busy with my physiology studies. So I continued as a postgraduate student and completed my master's and PhD by 2012 in cardiovascular physiology with a strong focus on biomarkers and cardiomyopathy and echocardiography. And after my PhD, I went to Udense in Denmark where um, I was supervised by Professor Michael Olson, who is the lead of the Lancet Commission on Hypertension and completed my postdoctoral work in 2014. My research have always addressed the early onset of hypertension and cardiovascular disease, and therefore my interest shifted to pediatric hypertension and early vascular aging. And my involvement with the International Society of Hypertension started in 2013, when I was part of the social media uh, committee of the New Investigators Network uh, until uh, 2016. And in 2016, I became the chair of the New Investigators Committee uh, for two terms until 2020, and was also selected as executive council member of the International Society of Hypertension from 2016 to 2018. And during this time, I was closely also involved as the co-lead for the May Measurement Month in South Africa, and contributed to several research papers with Prof. Neil Poulter and uh, other society members. And while I'm now currently part of the Women in Hypertension Research Committee, I also serve on their outreach working group in the society. And I'm also a fellow of the International Society of Hypertension. But aside from my uh, involvement in the International Society of Hypertension, I'm also involved in several other societies as board member, board of directors, committee or subcommittee or working group members, as you've um, uh, mentioned in the introduction. 
And of course, hypertension remains a global uh, concern. And since it tracks from childhood to adulthood, I think my research focus in hypertension is current and to, to focus on the health of children globally. You, um, I'm curious, you mentioned your passion for music. I was wondering how that fits in with your research and your academic life these days. Uh, well, very difficultly. Um, I still have my piano at home, so sometimes I, I would play for myself. Um, but I have been involved in church choir conduction and uh, playing the wow. organ in church. So uh, that is uh, not happening anymore <laughs> because of my busy schedule. But um, music still remains a, a big part of who I am. And uh, I really enjoy music even... Uh, only listening to, to music is, is enough. And Juan, you mentioned like that you participate like you you participate in many committees, especially like in the international side of hypertension. So uh, and you have accomplished a lot in like in your career so far. So if you look back at those and you weigh all those participations in committees and all, how did that help you? to move forward? Well, I think as a researcher, I believe networks and collaborations are essential to progress in one's career. And as an early career researcher, I started to go to international and national conferences and try to engage with as many researchers um, as I could. And from there, I gradually became part of the society's working groups and later committees and eventually boards or councils. And even though committee work is important to advance your career, they can also contribute to the end of a career if it's only what you do um, and not the research that we love to do. So I believe that there should be a balance between the actual research that we do and the amount of time we spend voluntarily in committee participation. But I think the involvement that I've um, enjoyed over the past few years I think definitely advances a, a career. And I think for any upcoming researchers, uh, this is definitely something to pursue. And something that we are really passionate about is mentoring. So we wanted to talk to you a little bit about mentoring next. Um, can you define your mentorship experience in one word for us, please? Humility. Um, can I, can I uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, please, yeah. So I would say humility because I believe uh, to remain humble and not let pride control my behavior is perhaps the key to being a good mentor. Um, we can always learn from each other independent of where we are in our careers and creating a space for a mentee which is inviting and supportive promotes good mentorship, in my opinion. Absolutely, yeah. And Juan, how important do you think mentorship is? I would say that mentorship is important, but I think mentorship can have several forms. Uh, for example, it can be direct or indirect. Um, I try my best to always be the best version of myself and to remain modest, but serious in my advice that I give and approach um, uh, to all different kinds of people. When some, someone approached me to benefit from my direct mentorship, then I will meaningfully contribute to that individual's development and success, while I also try to be indirectly involved in anyone's mentee experience that I happen to meet 
even though I'm not their identified mentor. So with several uncertainties in the academic world recently, um, I also believe that mentoring can be instrumental in anyone's career. No, we, we couldn't agree more. Um, and Ren, was there a specific time in your career that you realized you needed a mentor? Um, actually, no. I think I mostly benefited from indirect mentorship um, and mentorship was not uh, that um, robust or pronounced uh, in my early days of, of my research. And um, I never had a formal mentor-mentee relationship. But I think when it comes to career planning and strategic development, a mentor may provide insightful background to help a mentee shaping their decisions and future endeavors. Whenever I needed particular guidance, uh, I al always approached someone I trust and someone who is willing to make time to support me. So perhaps I have had several mentors already, but I would say that we need a mentor in every phase of our careers and not only once off during the start of our careers. So mentorship should form an integral part of our daily work. And well, now that you say like, um... I just wanted to expand a little bit on that because you mentioned that you didn't have any formal mentorship because you always had like, as, as it came, uh, do you think you miss it? Like, do you think, because nowadays, like a lot of like early careers and people like young researchers, they're more moving towards to a more formal structure mentorship because of many uh, different aspects that have changed things like uh, we became uh, who we are now. So in your point of view, like, what would you prefer? Like, or do you think you missed something by not having a formal mentorship experience? Well, I would say that um, in, in the times that I did not have a formal mentor, um, but I had these indirect mentorship relationships uh, or yeah, mentor-mentee relationships, I think, um, at that point, it was uh, preferred, um, in my opinion. But if, if we listen uh, among ourselves, everyone is always busy. So I think um, going that uh, route of um, indirect mentorship may be difficult for some mentees to always find that person they can trust and who are willing to provide their time to that mentee. So I think in today's time, a formal mentee-mentor relationship may be more beneficial because they will be dedicated time to, to work on the goals um, for that mentee. That's interesting because um, I have some formal uh, mentors, I guess, through programs, but I also have some mentors that came just from the relationship. And I actually don't find a difference in the time that they are willing to dedicate to when I need help. And I find that I tend to do the same with my own mentees, that whatever time that they need help, it's okay to ask for help. And I try to make the time. And I sometimes get phone calls or text messages saying, I need to check something. Can I just run something past you because I'm not sure how to handle a situation or I just didn't get a grant and I'm really upset. Can we have a chat? And I actually find that those moments are so rewarding because it shows how those people have such a degree of trust in us. Um, 
So yeah, but I, I see the place for both. I see the place for both. But I think like this still doesn't replace, you know, the, the power that has like just establishing those relationships as well. Yeah, and I think um, what you just mentioned, that is a clear definition of a good mentor. So um, independent of whether it's a formal, uh, you know, mentorship program or whether it's uh, relationship based, I think if it's a good mentor, then they will make time. Absolutely. Yeah, no, but, but the good thing about this structure too, for instance, as you said, like, I think like the mentees, they lose the fear of asking for help. They learn quickly. There's like, you know what? Like, yes. if they, I can have this person here. I can have many more. <laughs> and then they, they lose that, the barrier, right? To be like, uh, who, like, no, just whoever, you know, you, if you're interested in the person, just go and talk to her. And I think like, that's the, the best of like, yeah. uh, of it. Yeah. I think this structure is also good when um, people feel, uh, and I'm going to ask a question about feeling intimidated, but when people feel intimidated because they know that the person already allocated the time to them, so they might feel more comfortable yes. about asking. Yeah. 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 And Juan, so now switching from uh, a mentee to a mentor that you are now, like, how would you describe your mentorship uh, style? And if you can give us any examples, like, that would be perfect. So my mentoring style depends on the type of mentee that I need to mentor because everyone is different. Um, so as you mentioned before, some find it difficult to approach someone, um, whereas uh, some mentees are really, you know, expressive and they are ambitious. But I can adapt from being an idea maker to support mentees with their um with maybe little ambition or to a challenger that pushes a mentee asking hard questions and make sure that the mentee is really focused on their end goals. In other cases, I can be a cheerleader to help a mentee stay positive and focused on their growth um, or a connector to connect my mentee with people that I know that can help them better uh, with their specific goals. So as a mentor, I think we need to be adaptable to the individual that seeks mentorship. Absolutely. Yeah. And what traits do you think a good mentee has? Well, I think a mentee should be committed um, and responsible uh, for, for their own learning experience and to always be prepared for, for meetings and to follow through with, with their goals and objectives that they've set for themselves. They should also be flexible and adaptable. Um, I mean, in, in the academic world and in the research environment, things change rapidly. Um, experiments do not always you know, um, work out the way it was planned. So uh, they should be able to adapt to specific situations and uh, still be focused on their end goals um, and also be willing to consider different ideas or opinions and to try new things. Um, they also have to be willing to accept feedback. Um, sometimes feedback is not always, um, you know, ex accepted. And uh, they should be able to discuss areas for improvement and ask for help, as well as to share one's needs and views with their mentor. They should also be able to uh, take initiative to do something without being prompted to do so. And I, th I think that is when when they start to develop independence and really grow as, as a researcher. 
and and Juan, like when people are uh, looking uh, for a new environment, as you mentioned, like you went for your postdoc in Odense, um, it's a very like stressful time, right? Because you wanted to make sure that uh, <clears throat> you want to do the right choice. You want to go to that group that's going to really push you forward and really going to teach you something for you to take back with you. Uh, so how did you identify that environment? Or like, how do you think, what, how should we identify a good training environment for ourselves? So uh, as a mentee, you need to feel happy and safe, uh, meaning you have to trust people in your training environment and make sure you are accepted in that environment. Um, unfortunately, not all environments fit everyone's optimal zone of performance, and therefore you need to make sure that your training environment is stimulating and challenges your excellence. If those qualities lack in your training environment, you may be in the wrong environment to grow your career. So um, we typically try with our PhD students to already identify international or national experts or uh, potential supervisors for a postdoctoral um, uh, uh, career. And um, that was the case when I was doing my PhD. We already started this discussions with uh, Professor Michael Olson and um, we worked together on, on several ideas. And by the time I finalized my PhD, we've already set up a good relationship in order to take that fo forward um, in a postdoctoral fellowship. So I think it, it's, uh, it comes down to good planning and strategizing and wh where you want to, to end up. Yeah, no, that's a very good point about being strategic. And I think something that um, at least I was very naive about um, thinking that way when I was uh, finishing my PhD. So a very good point. Yeah. And um, something that happens to me a lot um, is that I become quite intimidated to talk to some people who have always been uh, like that through my whole life and career. I was wondering if, um, if you have any advice on how people like myself can overcome uh, the intimidation when we need to go and we're at the ISH conference and we want to go and say hi to someone. How do we break that barrier? Uh, well, I don't think you are the only one feeling like that. <laughs> so to be honest, I have always struggled to, to talk to anyone as I identify as an introvert. Um, however, networking is key to success in the academic and research environment. So uh, nonetheless, I always tell myself that talking to people, whether they are intimidating or not, may yield to some collaboration or not. So if so, then good relationships can develop um, but if not, then you reached out and you get noticed at least. So my advice is to just approach whoever you want to talk to and it may work out to your advantage or you may learn how to deal with intimidation and overcome it the next time. It remains a learning curve, I think, um, always. Yeah. And who are now switching like a little bit of uh, one of our favorite topics as well and discuss a little bit of issues in terms of like diversity and inclusion and, and all of that. So what do you think is the biggest problem or a few problems that we have around that theme 
And what do you think we can do to change that? Not only hypertension research, but also like in the career progress aspect. Yeah, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, I think uh, there's a combination of bias and discrimination, which are the barriers um, to, to, to diversity and inclusion. And regarding diversity, people have preconceived ideas about a particular ethnicity, gender, or religion. And discrimination is the default human reaction to what we don't know. So whereas inclusion is largely influenced by biased opinions and lobbying, uh, as we know in societies, and these are the biggest threats, I think, in the evolution of scientific societies and their transparency. How do you think we can change that? Uh, I think societies should adopt different strategies to overcome the massive negative impact of lobbying during nomination processes and voting of council members. There's a lack of transparency in many large societies whereby only a select few are promoted and identified to form part of such councils or boards, which also impacts on diversity and representation of gender, age, ethnicity, and geographic region in such councils. Um, so therefore that movement uh, against panels or panels without fair representation of women, um, those kind of movements are really important. But I also think that representation of age groups and ethnicity, sexual orientation and country is extremely important, not only in the hypertension research environment, but across all areas of management structures. And that's a very good point that you talk about um, um, regional representation as well, because we can't uh, change um, the current structure of research and the culture if we're not inclusive. Uh, and we need to take into consideration uh, countries that are, may not be as uh, privileged in terms of research support, for example. Yeah, that's, that's true. And um, can I say, I love that you're both part of the Women in Hypertension Research Committee. Um, I, I find sometimes that there's so many women that are willing to join uh, this type of committees, but not men. So uh, thank you both for being part of the Women in Hypertension Research Committee. We really need to have men on board as well to be able to make a change. And on that topic, Ren, I was wondering if you can uh, comment if you have any advice for women in research and how we can change uh, the representation of women in uh, research in hypertension. So, yeah, the, the, the advice I have is perseverance and flower power. I would say the movement of women in science or STEM is globally recognized. Uh, however, we are not yet where it should be. There are many excellent leaders who are women and they are making huge strides to fight for their place in the research areas across disciplines. Uh, but I think the main responsibility is with the younger generations and the mid-career level women to drive this movement of women in science and to not give up yet. The world is um, in an ever-changing state and women can take advantage of this metamorphosis because I believe great changes can um, take time, but important changes develop very slowly. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to change things faster. Yeah. Yes. And, and Juan, just like to, uh, as a, our final question, uh, we are hopefully 
coming out well i don't know if it's like everywhere but at least <laughs> in the uk here they say like we are getting out of the covid pandemic so hopefully that's going to be true for like everybody in the in the entire world um yes but we can't ignore the devastating effects that the uh, that the pandemic had on everybody's life in many different aspects but for the sake of our podcast here specifically in career progress for our uh, ECRs, uh, the early career researchers. So do you have any idea of like how your community, community uh, what they did to better support those junior researchers or would like to share with us like some ideas that where you think what we should do to help them to not be so damaged by, by it? Yes, so it uh, the the pandemic was definitely devastating, um, and I think it was even worse for um, f families with small children, uh, women in their early career um, with who are already a mother. I think that was um, a, a terrible time, you know, to balance family life, personal life, and work life, um, and homeschooling children. I mean. Uh, on top of all your other responsibilities that that must be impossible but women actually uh, were able to do that um, it came at a price I suppose but I think what our community did during the pandemic is to um, improve the culture of caring among the researchers and university staff um, there was a reach out to pro to promote positive thinking, um, uh, the ethic of care, and to um, really be um, uh, uh, really show empathy to to those who are really struggling throughout these times. Uh, but I think what could um, help, in addition, is to optimize mentorship and uh, mentors should reach out to be responsive. And I think with with the technology we have today, um, these kind of relationships should be much easier. Uh, we don't need to get on a plane to, to get to a mentor. We can, uh, um, as Francine men mentioned, uh, hop on WhatsApp or uh, on a phone call and have these kind of discussions. I think also to optimize str strategic and goal-oriented planning um, between ourselves, uh, so our own um, planning as well as for for mentors and mentees and also funding opportunities that should be directed to upcoming researchers um, I think during the pandemic time uh, research outputs uh, was uh, not as opt optimal as as it would have as we would have thought because uh, we now had uh, more more time <laughs> to, to write but I think um, funding opportunities for early career researchers uh, should be strategized and um, and be able to to improve uh, their onset of their research career. Yeah, no, absolutely, I think that's a very important point and I hope that's something that um, funding bodies are thinking ahead because the impact is not just now, the impact is for the next five years. Yes, and, exactly. Um, yeah, we really need to support our community. Mm. All right. Oh, well, Ron, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to have a chat. Um, and thank you for um, yeah, spending this time with uh, Guto and I talking about some very important issues. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. It was very um, nice to see you and to to hear your voices. Um, and I'm I'm looking forward to the the upcoming ish conference. Hopefully, we will be able to see each other face to face. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.